Does anyone here still make New Year's resolutions? Does anybody do that? You've given up, haven't you? I have friends that still, I'm not really a New Year's resolution person, but I do know some people that try to, toward the end of the previous year, start making some plans, start mapping out some areas that they would like to improve or work on. It might be they want to lose a certain amount of weight or want to save this much money or something like that. And some of my friends still do that. But some of them say it's just, it makes me feel too bad because they don't last. They don't, they don't keep going. I am always curious the first couple of months of the year at the YMCA when I see people that I, have, that I have never seen in there before. And honestly, it's a little irritating because they come in there and you have to wait on the machines and, and things you know, like this, especially when you're only doing lightweight the way that I am. You have to wait for the beginners to get through with their little five and 10 pound exercises so I can do my two and three pound exercises. <laughs> And so you see people who begin the new year and you know that they have said this is the year. But it isn't the year. Maybe a cold February day that's very wet, the crowd's a little bit less and then a little bit less and by spring break it's back to just old regular people. And sometimes that same process happens in our faith. I don't think anyone here would dispute the fact that at various points in our lives, we've had some really meaningful encounters with God. Maybe there has been a pivotal moment that seemed to awaken you to a deeper understanding of God. Maybe it was a crisis moment and God answered prayers and brought you through that crisis and you promised him, God, I'm really going to be faithful this time. I mean it. I know I've promised you some things before, but I'm going to keep these. And you were sincere. You weren't faking. You weren't acting. We weren't pretending. We really meant what we said. But those promises did not last. We did not endure. This morning, I want us to look at some words that Paul wrote to Timothy that will, I think, if we apply them to our lives, help us endure. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're not going to read the whole chapter. In fact, we're not going to look at all of it just at one time, guys. I'll just call out some verses in the body of the sermon to look at together. While you're turning there, I don't know if you noticed this today, but Shelly shifted from guitar over to the little drum box. She's showing off her versatility. If anybody needs a carburetor replaced in the engine or you need uh, some woodworking done, just call Shelly. She's kind of branching out in things. And then you might know this. I think I've told the Wednesday night crowd before. I have about 25 friends that I ask to watch our worship services just to give feedback. You know, when, when someone looks at something that you see all the time, they notice some things that you don't. And so about, tw about 25 of my friends watch our services every week. And I'm telling you, when Jackson's contract comes up for renegotiation... <laughs> There are music people across the southeast. I don't know how far you're willing to travel. But 
I'm telling you, we have a blessing with the people that we have here. I mean, they're, they're giving extra time. They've got jobs during the week, and they come. And so I want you to know that I'm grateful for that. All right. I mentioned when we were getting ready to pray that Paul wrote these words to Timothy. Every Bible scholar, every commentary that I've ever read agrees this letter is the very last one that Paul wrote. You can read, in fact, when we get to chapter 4, you will see that Paul said, look, I know that I don't have many days left. The time for my departure has come. Paul was in prison when he wrote this, and not long after this, the history books, we know that he died. The history books tell us that Paul was beheaded for his faith. He would not back down. They tried to get him to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. He said, I can't do that. Jesus changed me. Paul said, I have the greatest news that anybody ever can hear. Jesus stepped from heaven. He came to earth. He died on a cross for our sins. They buried him and his enemies thought that he was gone. Even his followers weren't sure that they would see him again. But on the third day, he rose again. He promised them that he would and he did. And every single day since then, Jesus has been changing lives. And so Paul said, I cannot keep quiet. You may want me to keep quiet. I might even want to keep quiet to save my life. But something is burning in me, Paul said, and I just can't stop. And so with the awareness that he did not have many days left, he wrote this letter to Timothy. We know for a fact that Paul was single when he wrote the New Testament, he said so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But there are some people, I've read some commentaries, that suggest that maybe, they don't say this definitively, but they say maybe Paul was married at one time because he held some very prominent positions in Jewish society. It's particularly in the religious circles. And some of the requirements, some of those positions required that one be married. And so people are kind of divided. I don't know that one takes precedent over the other, but some people say Paul was so brilliant they made an exception. Say, look, this guy knows the Old Testament. He needs to be a part of our ruling council. And then there are some other people who say maybe he was married. And then his wife said, look, I did not sign up to be the wife of a Christian missionary and leaving you. That's just speculation. I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just saying that that, that is a possibility. And I say that to say that, that I've not read any commentary ever that suggested that Paul had biological children. Even if he were married, there's no mention of any physical, biological, genetic relationships that he has. But as he traveled from place to place, Paul found people in whom he saw God at work. And so he mentored, he trained, he discipled, he equipped these people and then commissioned them out to ministry. Timothy is one of those young men that Paul really had poured himself into. And then when he was ready... Timothy became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. The letter, the letter that we have to the Ephesians in the New Testament was written to the church where Timothy was pastor. So they got three letters from Paul. There's the letter to the whole church, the letter to the Ephesians, and then Timothy got First and Second Timothy written to him as their pastor. Well, here Paul gives us some tips for how you and I 
can let our commitments to Christ keep going and not fade away as time passed. I want to read verse 6 to give you one idea of what Paul talks about here. First, Paul says if we're going to let our commitments to Christ keep going and growing, then we need to follow up on them. Look at what he says in verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul introduced a metaphor that we're going to use all throughout the message today. It's the, it's the message of fire. Now, somebody's going to have to speak loudly. Where my translation says, therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you. Does anyone have phrasing that is different from rekindle? Stir up for this reason. That's what I'm... Who said that? Ashley, thank you for having a godly Bible. That, that's what I'm looking for where, where Paul said, look, I want you to fan this into flame. I, I want you to keep the fire of your passion for Jesus Christ growing. And so I want you to use that image here. I want you to think about it. Those of you who have real fireplaces in your home, not a natural gas or propane that you hit a switch, but those of you who are required to go out and get wood and stack it in the fireplace and then light it, if you place the fire in the fireplace and then you go off to bed, what will happen to the fire overnight? It will die down. Even if there's still wood in there, even if, even if the fireplace still has wood in it, the fire needs to be attended. It needs to be stirred up. It needs to be fanned back into flame every now and then. That's what you have those little tools by the fireplace for. You have the little poker. That's not for branding your younger brother. You sit there and you take that and you just stir up the flame so that it, so that it builds back. If... You just put the wood in there and light it and do nothing else to it, never address it again. Eventually, it will burn low, even if there's plenty of fuel. Paul said, look, faith is the same way. We can't way back here make a one-time commitment to Christ and never address it, never stir it up, never fan it into flame again. Eventually, our enthusiasm will wear down, our passion will grow low, our energy for Christ will wane. He said, Timothy, don't let that happen to you. You've made this commitment to God. You want to serve Him. You're faithful to Him. Keep stirring up this, this gift. Keep stirring your passion for God. Don't assume that simply by passively participating in, in religious activities that faith in Christ continues to grow in the same way that you must take those little tools by the fireplace and stir the fan into flame. We must work on our faith that way as well. God supplies the power. He says that in Philippians chapter 2. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But right before that, work out your salvation. One of the reasons that people go through these ups and downs and these roller coasters, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, is they lack the attention to keep building their faith. 
they want God just to zap them. They want God just to, boom, okay, now you're growing. And God says, no, I, that's not the way that I work. In order to stir up your faith, you need to engage in God's word. You need to converse with, with God in prayer. We need to find ways to serve and actively use the gifts that God has given us. We need to participate in ministry that we see. All of those activities are ways that we fan into flame so that our flame does not burn low. I may have shared this story with you before, but it's the one that, I, that, I, that came to my mind when I was working on this message. When I was at Mount Vernon, we had several families from right across the state line in Alabama who were part of our church, and one of those families was the Euler family. Terry Euler and then Sandy and Christy, her two daughters. Christy is the one, do you remember a few weeks ago, who grabbed my thumb and broke it? And so... Uh, Sandy, her older sister, would come to church every week and her car was a disaster. If, if after church on Sunday nights we were going somewhere to eat or something like that, you could not, physically, you could not get in Sandy's car because there would be megaphones and pom-poms and backpack and cheerleader shoes, ferrets, all these kind of things in there and you just could not get in there. And so, and if you did, you needed a tetanus shot. And so we, we would say, hey, let's go. And people would say, we can't get in here. And I one time said, Sandy, why do you keep your car? She's, I know, it's so messy. But, and, and to be fair, she did not have a nice car. She said, but this is such a junky car. If my daddy ever buys me a new car, I am going to keep it clean. And so, Sandy's senior year, her dad did buy her a new car. Went to Columbus Nissan and bought her, it was a used one, but bought her, for those of you who remember these, a Nissan 300ZX. Exactly. And Sandy did keep it clean for two weeks. And then one Wednesday, we walked out to the parking lot and the pom-poms, the cheerleader shoes. It was a disaster again. I don't know what afternoon Sandy first said, I'm just going to leave the pom-poms in here. I don't know what day it was that she said, I'm going to put the megaphone in the back. But that was the failing to fan into flame the commitment that she made. Every single one of us, at some point or another, has had an awakening, has realized, you know, I really need to get straight with God. And we made a commitment to Him, we made a promise to Him, and we intended to keep it. But we failed to fan it into flame. And as a result, we settled right back into being the people that we were before. And so Paul said, Timothy, don't let that happen to you. There's a second idea that he talks about, and it's in verses 7 and 8. If you look in, in these verses, Paul said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So don't be, afraid, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. 
The second idea that Paul talks about here is to expose our faith to outside people. Now, that may seem a little unusual here, but if, if I have interpreted this correctly based on how I've learned about this, Paul wasn't saying to Timothy, in the context of your church, Timothy, in the context of the people who gather for worship on Sundays, you need to preach boldly. Timothy, don't back down. Don't be ashamed. There isn't any indication at all that Timothy was a... Um, behind-the-scenes person or that he did not carry out his pastoral duties well. But the implication here seems to be that Paul looked at what was happening, or that Timothy looked at what was happening to Paul and thought, man, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be shipwrecked. And what I've noticed, perhaps, Timothy thought about Paul is that he's very open out in the marketplace about proclaiming Jesus. What if I just preach Jesus to my people, but don't ever say anything to the people outside the church? Paul said, Timothy, that won't work. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. God did not call you to be timid. God did not call you to be fearful. Instead, what he's called you to do is to have a spirit of power, love, and sound judgment. And when you have that spirit, then you will be able to share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. The indications are that Timothy's naturally timid personality carried over into the expression of his faith so that even though he was more than happy to talk with people who believed the way that he did about Jesus and how wonderful he is, that he seemed to shy away from conversations about Jesus with people who did not believe the way that he did. When the only people with whom we discuss our faith are church people. When we don't have outside conversations with people that we know don't share our belief, our flame begins to burn lower. And I want to use two examples to show you what I'm talking about. One is the literal example of fire. I don't know what your plans will be tomorrow, but it wouldn't surprise me if there aren't people in the room that intend to grill hamburgers or hot dogs or something like that tomorrow. If you have a charcoal grill and you put your charcoal in, in the grill and you get it uh, straightened out and, and uh, arranged the way that you want and you put the lighter fluid on there, you light the grill. If as you're grilling you keep the lid of the grill closed the entire time, what will happen to the fire? It'll go out. Fire consumes oxygen. It, it needs oxygen in order to keep rejuvenating. And when you close the lid of the grill, the oxygen underneath that shell begins to burn up and the fire will die. But you can do one of two things. You either can open 
the lid of the grill or you can adjust the vents on the side so that outside air can get to the fire and when the outside air gets to the fire, it begins to burn more brightly. One of the reasons that the faith, the commitment of people in church pews begins to wane is they don't have any non-Christian friends with whom they're sharing. They don't have anybody who is from the outside that they are engaging in conversations about Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, Gary, what does that really matter? Why is that important? Here's my other example. If you played on an athletic team in high school or college, or you still do that, you have some opponents or you had some opponents that you knew because they were a smaller school or not very good, you knew we are going to win tonight. Hey, everybody's playing tonight. Second th string, third string, fourth string, Gary, everybody's getting in the game tonight because we are going to win. It would have to be an absolute disaster if we did not win this game in a big way. In those games, you might not play as crisply as you do when you're playing an opponent that could beat you. When you're playing an opponent that you know could win the game, you focus on every play because that one play could be the difference maker. I have a friend who was a manager at Mississippi State when uh, Coach Cheryl was over there. And, and Tyler, who now is a banker in Water Valley, says that Coach Cheryl regularly preached to people, you must play every play because you never know when a tipped ball could result in an interception and that one play could, the entire outcome of the game could could switch on that one play. And so when you're playing an opponent against whom you're evenly matched, or maybe that is better than you, you're really, really locked in to say, I've got to give my best every moment because this one thing could be the difference maker. Now let me show you the application. When a Christian is determined to share his faith in work environments, in school environments, in contexts where there are people who do not know Christ, then automatically the Christian knows, okay, now they're watching me. Now that I've gone to work and, and been vocal about my faith now that I've gone to school and told other people about Jesus and the change that he has made in me, they are watching me to see if Jesus really has made a change. I mean, if I'm going to proclaim them, if I'm going to invite them to church, if I'm going to say, look, would you please consider surrendering your life to Christ? He can change you. Then automatically we know I've got to be at my very best every single day. Because they are watching me to say, look, you've said that Jesus can change your life. I don't think he's changed you very much. When we expose our faith to outside people, then we know I've got to be close to Jesus. 
I've got to... I've got to bury myself in his word. I've really got to rely on him because now that I have put my faith to the outside sources, I know that they're watching me and I want to represent Jesus Christ well. When the only people with whom we speak about Jesus are church people, we tend not to be as sharp. We tend to let our guards down a little bit. We compromise a little bit because everybody knows we're Christians but the people who are outside, who are watching to see if we are consistent, if we have integrity, if what we do matches what we say, then we know I've got to be at my very best. And it helps our faith keep growing stronger. One last idea that I want to mention here, we've talked about two so far. One is that we must continue to follow up on the commitments that we make, engaging God with, with the spiritual disciplines and other things that will help us grow. We need to seek intentionally some outside people with whom we can start sharing our faith so that, so that we get the energy from the outside oxygen. And then third, we need to be around other people who are determined they're going to keep growing as well. Very few sources of God's inspiration are stronger than people who are passionate about their own relationship with Christ. One of the reasons that, that I try to keep going is because I have some friends that are determined to keep going. And their example challenges me. Well, look at what Paul said down in verse 16. Still chapter 1, but all the way down in verse 16. Paul said, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. If any of you have uh, are expecting children, I suggest that name. <laughs> May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtain mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Paul pulls back the curtain a good bit in this book and gives us some, or some biographical information. And he said, this road has been hard for me. I've tried to serve Jesus Christ. I've given him the best that I can. But I've had some really hard days and I've had some really hard nights. And as I'm thinking about those, Paul said, I'm so grateful for Onesiphorus. Here I was in this lonely prison cell, rat infested, chained so that sores were on my wrists and ankles, imprisoned and not able to move freely, Wondering if other people had forgotten about me. Wondering if God had forgotten about me. And then one day I heard, Paul! Paul! I thought I recognized the voice. And I said, yes, I'm here! And it was Onesiphorus. Who found me in my prison cell. And the word that Paul used is a powerful one because he often refreshed me. When I was low, 
when I thought I'm just not going to be able to keep going, Onesiphorus said, oh, yes, you can. Paul, you've been through worse than this. You keep right on going. You keep right on ministering. You keep right on sending those letters. You keep going. And Onesiphorus refreshed Paul. Something about having a partnership with people who also want to keep growing helps us keep growing. Something about not having to pursue Christ all by ourselves, all alone, enables us to stay strong. Our commitment keeps refueling because there are people like Onesiphorus who refresh us. If, if we were honest, now some church people are not honest. Some, people, some church people never have a bad day. Some church people never go through a hard time. Some, some church people never have a weakness, never have a struggle. They've never really meant much to me. But the people who say, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm facing. This is what I'm dealing with. I don't want my attitude to be bad. I don't want my perspective to be bad. But these circumstances are hard. When you have someone who comes right next to you and says, you've got to go through this, but you don't have to go through it alone. Then those people refresh us. They inspire us to keep going. About three years ago, I was speaking between Christmas week and New Year's Day. That's a big week for youth things. That week between Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And I was speaking right outside of Jackson at a retreat for a number of churches in that area who had gone together. And one of those evenings, we were having a bonfire. And people were roasting marshmallows and hot dogs and to be right there by the fire. He constantly was asking the man who was his student minister, hey, can I, can I throw this cup into the fire? Can I throw this can into the fire? Can I throw this child into the fire? He was just always <laughs> wanting to throw things in the fire. And the guy kept saying, no, leave the fire alone. And he could not leave the fire alone. And something was, I, I, don't, I, don't, I did not see this beginning part. But he stepped over the little stones that, were, that made the fire circling. He got in there, and the student minister said, get out of there. And so when he did, he, he kind of jumbled the fire a little bit, and one of the logs, one of the limbs, rolled away from the fire. It kind of jostled a little bit and fell, and then one of the limbs rolled away. And it wasn't long before that limb wasn't burning. It was away from all of the other sticks and branches that were on fire. You and I need each other. Not one person here is able to say, you know what, I can just keep right on going with my commitment. 
and my fire is not ever going to burn out, even if I don't have other people who are burning next to me. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that what I've just said is true. You won't, I won't, we won't keep burning if we do not have others who are burning right with us. And Paul said, Timothy, what you need is an Onesiphorus. You need someone who is a partner with you so that when you don't within yourself have the energy to keep going, that that burning branch right next to you can say, yes, you can. Let's keep right on going. All of us have begun projects. We have started resolutions that we did not finish. And those projects may not have been very important, but our relationship with Jesus Christ is. And so we want to keep burning and keep growing so that our passion keeps, keeps pushing us on. You never know who is in a church building on a Sunday morning and we want to offer you a chance to respond today. Mr. Charlie's going to come, and they're going to lead us in the closing song of commitment. Now, when we sing together, I want to offer you a couple of different ways that you might want to respond. One is that you might say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know him. I come to church, and I listen to the sermon. I go to Sunday school, but... Personally, I do not have what you're talking about. I don't have that. I would love to talk with you about how you can begin your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe there are people who are here and you say, I know that I belong to Jesus. I'm going to heaven when I die, but I am like this. And, and, and I'll make a commitment and it just dies away. And I just go back and forth, back and forth. Would you pray with me? Of course I would do that. In whatever way God's Spirit speaks to you, I hope that you'll be obedient to that. What are we going to sing for our commitment? Sing 552, my faith looks up to thee. Let's turn to hymn number 552. Let's stand together. You respond to what God has said to you this morning.